Hey, 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 guys. Welcome to Building This Community. This is your city business and policy development podcast. We're your hosts, Luke Patrick and Andrew Klump. Welcome to this week's episode of Building This Community. Our guest today is Mayor Jim Brainerd, who is the mayor of Carmel, Indiana, and is the trustee and co-chair of the Energy Independence and Climate Protection Task Force for the U.S. Conference of Mayors. Mayor, how are you? I'm great. How are you this morning? Doing well, doing well. Thank you uh, so much for joining us. I I think this will be a great discussion. I gave a little bit of your background, but can you just provide a little more depth on on who you are and what you do? Sure. I grew up in a little town up in northern Indiana, attended Butler University as a history major, did law school in Ohio, practiced law for a number of years, Uh, became mayor in uh, early 1996. Uh, in Carmel when it was about 25,000 people. Today, we're over 102,000 people. We have, uh, you know, we're in a part of the country. We uh, don't have mountains. We don't have oceans. We have lousy weather some days, although the day's beautiful, but not always the case. And so we have to uh, make certain that we build a beautiful, functional, safe city if we're going to be able to attract economic development. It's so important for large companies to be able to say to the best and brightest around the globe that they need to hire. This is a good place to raise your family and live your life. And so we have focused a lot on building a beautiful city, building a place that people want to live. We are one of the few suburban communities. We're part of the Indianapolis metropolitan area. One of the few suburban cities in the country that has made the leap from being a car-only suburb, a place with a walkable downtown, lots of bike trails, over 250 miles of bike path in our city now, taking our park lines since I've been mayor from 40 acres up to about 1,000 acres, and built some uh, world-class performing arts centers to anchor our new downtown. Uh, beautiful concert hall, several small theaters. All of our amenities are really clustered around rail-to-trail projects. Real estate people would say it's our beachfront property. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's great, and uh, I love hearing that you're a Butler grad. My sister's actually a professor there, so uh, you know, very very cool. Now, Not only my Butler <laughs> grad, my uh, parents met there, and my sister is a Butler graduate. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> Long time. Wow. Yeah. So I heard you on Freakonomics Radio discussing roundabouts, and that really is kind of what spurred this this interview, this discussion. Um, can you just tell us a little bit briefly? I know you said Carmel is really getting into it, but what, what is a roundabout? How's that different from maybe like a traffic circle or a rotary? Sure. You know, this goes back to when I was in law school and was over in England during some graduate study, and I saw these things. I thought, you know, again, it. I pointed out a history major and a lawyer. I don't didn't know anything about civil engineering. But I saw these things in Britain and, and later in France. I thought, you know, they're working pretty well. You don't wait as long. Uh, and and so after I became mayor, I asked one of our consulting engineers whether they could help us build a roundabout. And he immediately said to me, no, I won't put my professional stamp on them. They're taking them out up in New England. And I paused because I, I, I knew that what I had seen in New England, the big old-fashioned rotaries 
and traffic circles in the mid-Atlantic states were very different than what I had seen in Britain. I didn't know anything about civil engineering, but I didn't know my way around libraries. So I drove up to the Purdue University Library one Saturday in January of 1996. I remember that day because it was super cold, well below zero. Got into the library, was able to locate some articles that distinguished between roundabouts and rotaries. I didn't even know the reality. Read them, photocopied them, brought them back, gave them to the same consulting engineer, and I said, please read. Then can we talk about this again? He came back. Okay, don't do these in the Midwest. I just didn't know about them. And understood the difference between rotaries and roundabouts. Let me tell you what those are. Rotaries are bigger circles. They usually, when you drive into the rotary, you're often not angled. When you drive out, you're often not angled. You just drive straight in and straight out. Uh, they often are multi-lanes, which means that people drive faster in the circle. It's almost counterintuitive, but the smaller the roundabout, safer it becomes. Because accident rates and personal injury rates and death and fatality rates are all about speed. If cars are going slowly, people don't get hurt. If cars are going slowly, they have more response time. So small circles are better for older drivers that may need more response time. They're better for younger and experienced drivers. And better for pedestrians because pedestrians are interacting any intersection with, with cars. And so if the cars are going slower, the pedestrians are much, much cheaper. And then because... You ever been frustrated sitting there by a stoplight? You're the only car there. The light's mm-hmm. red. You're just twiddling your thumbs, burning up gasoline, expensive gasoline, polluting. Uh, roundabout, you would drive on through. Uh, my point is, you can move about twice the number of cars for a roundabout per hour. You can, and even though you're going slower, I joke when I speak to audience sometimes, I'm in a room full of people, I say, in this room, ever speed up to go through a yellow light. And then I stop, you know, a few people try to throw their hands. No, I, I know nobody in this room really does that. And I say, does anybody ever like speed up to go through a pink light, an early red light? Same thing. I said, we all do this. We all know we do it. I get them laughing and thinking about it. I said, that's when accidents happen. We know the human error rate is doesn't change that much. Humans are human. So every 100,000 cars or every million cars through a, a light, you're going to have one or two accidents. What is that rate? There's a lot of studies on that. Let's say it's uh, one per 100,000. Well, if you have 150,000 cars through a light a day, that's one accident. So is that accident going to be a high-speed accident, or is it going to be a low-speed accident that doesn't kill somebody, that doesn't really have that much property damage? Uh, and maybe you're going to have, probably going to have fewer accidents because at slower speeds, people can avoid those accidents. They have more time to recover to avoid that accident. A higher speed, when you make an error, it's too late to fix it. We've heard uh, Carmel be described as, as a standard for roundabouts here in America. Do you think that's an apt description? And what makes specifically, and I know you've already covered some of the benefits, but but your community is so interested in them. Well, we 
started building them as we expanded back in the late 90s. People grew to love them here. Uh, we have today about 140 roundabouts, exactly 140 roundabouts. We've got seven under construction or at least bid for construction. We're down to, oh, eight or nine traffic lights in the city. People don't have to wait. Our safety statistics here is a good one. We, you know, it's hard to figure out first injury. But I might be in an accident, feel okay. A few days later, their back's hurting. They go to the hospital, get some treatment. That never shows up on the police report. So it's hard to track personal injuries sometimes, especially from minor accidents. But one statistic that is very easy to track are fatalities. How many fatalities? If somebody dies in a traffic accident, police are going to know it. And it's going to be tracked. And we have that statistic. So we started to look at what traffic fatalities are across the country and within other cities in, Indi in Indiana. And uh, Jeff Speck in his book, uh, uh, his most recent book has some statistics and he points out that it's uh, 12 to 14 per 100,000 people die every year in traffic accidents states. Then he points out in suburban cities where the roads have been built wider and for faster speed generally, tends to be over 14, almost 14 to 17 fatalities per year. Additional cities are slightly safer. Then we started to look at where Carmel was per 100,000 people per year. We have a five-year trailing average of only two fatalities per year. Indianapolis, we're part of the Indianapolis metropolitan area and actually share a street with them. They're just under 12 per 100,000 per year. And I should point out, much of Indianapolis, it's the same as the county they're located in, is, is a suburban development pattern. So it's it's not, you know, the downtown area is about a mile square. There's mid-rise buildings in the 1820s and 30s and 40s, order that goes for several miles. But most of Indianapolis is what a land planner would call suburban sprawl. So they're, they're in that category for the most part. But our, we're six times better. We have one-sixth the amount of fatalities that Indianapolis does. And I point out, you know, it's the same weather, same drivers. Uh, the difference is road design. It makes a huge difference. Do you think that's solely just roundabouts or the fact that, like you mentioned earlier, that you also incorporate bike, bike and uh, transit lanes? I, I think it's mainly roundabouts because if you look at where most fatalities occur, they're at intersections. Our intersections are different types of intersections than what other places have. Uh, hopefully we do good engineering other way in terms of eliminating as many left turns as possible, most dangerous movement in traffic planning. Uh, you know, we do a lot of medians in our street because of the roundabout. So instead of allowing a left-hand turn out of a business, for instance, there's a roundabout 300 yards off to the right. You have a median down the middle of the street, force those cars to turn right, do a U-turn around the roundabout, come back. Sticking on that topic of bike lanes, I, it, it's not always the case that when you build them, you know, they will come. Like Louisville has a 
substantial number of biking lanes throughout the city, but our biking community might not be as strong as one would expect based purely on like the miles of lanes we have. Um, do you in, in Carmel have a strong biking or public transit community as a result of the changes that you guys have made? And, and what do you think if you do have such a community has driven, uh, has driven that into existence? Well, we do have a strong community, but let me talk for a minute about how we design our bike lanes, which is different than the way Louisville is doing it, I think, in most cases. We are a suburban city, so we have more right-of-way available in many cases. So all but a few miles of our bike lanes are either dedicated rail-to-trail projects uh, or other off-street bike corridors, utility easements, or they're above the curb bike lanes away from the vehicular street. So we have old, what we call county roads in Indiana on a mile grid that were laid out in the 1800s when the area was settled. And we're flat, so it tends to be a pretty square grid. And those roads, we've turned into arterials today, uh, usually boulevards with roundabouts every so often, certainly every mile, if not more often. Um, and then, because we have enough right-of-way in most of the cases, we put a 10 to 12-foot bike lane above the curb, three or four, the start of the bike lane is three or four feet off, maybe five or six feet in some cases, off the, uh, away from the curb, above the curb. And so that makes the bike lanes much safer, I think, for families. Now, I also joke, you know, I call them boys in spandex. There's some people that want to ride there in right with the vehicles and it's allowed uh but most families most recreational riders are going to get up off the main part of the street uh and and be on those uh, dedicated paths but we have a few where we've actually uh have the bike lanes right there on the side of the vehicle lanes we don't have many like that and i think that uh that encourages a lot of families and, and older people to ride bikes that might not want to get right out there with traffic. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Now, as far as one, one could argue that having more bike lanes helps, you know, at least create an additional buffer space for pedestrians. So there's let they're even further removed from traffic going by while they're walking down the sidewalk. But has Carmel considered, you know, going beyond that and just creating car free zones you know business sectors i mean i just got back from las vegas and old vegas is all just a huge strip maybe almost a mile of i, I knew oscar goodman when he was mayor of las vegas when that project was done his wife is now the mayor carolyn goodman i served on the board of the u.s Congress of mayors uh with uh both of them for years and uh you, you know vegas is a, a different place in the United States. You have lots of pedestrian traffic. One of, you know, I grew up in northern Indiana. One of the examples I remember as a kid was was Kalamazoo, Michigan. Uh, Western Michigan University is there as well as Kalamazoo College. Uh, it's a nice city. Uh, Portage is its twin city. So it'll combine. It has to be over a couple hundred thousand, I think. That we had the students. It's a lot more. But they took Kalamazoo's downtown back in the 1950s. It was an experiment that was watched by urban planners around the United States at the time. And they made it a pedestrian-free zone, much like many cities in older Europe. It worked for a while. 
but then it didn't work. Then they went back and redid it years ago. They put in very narrow car lanes with Mom Street parking. They made those lanes so narrow that you can't drive fast, kept wide sidewalks, but allowed people, you know, there's not much parking on that street, but it's called teaser parking. It forces people into, you know, they drive through, they don't see any places, and they turn into the car. The car traffic is allowed, but it goes very slowly. It's still very pedestrian, but having that mix, so elderly people, uh, you know, Kalamazoo's up in Michigan, they get a lot of rain and snow in the winter drop people off in front of stores it all works better so mayor moving on to another subject that we've known that you're pretty outspoken about it's trying to find a bipartisan uh effort and response to either slow or mitigate the effects of climate change yes why is that a topic that you're so interested in and how can similar cities you know of a certain size uh try and mitigate those adverse effects First of all, I think it's our duty to leave the world in a better place than we found it. You know, I was a Boy Scout as a kid, and that's the, one of the first lessons we learned. Uh, and, of course, as a scout, as a child, you spend a lot of time in the woods camping and learning to appreciate the natural world. And, you know, you know, I'm a Republican, so sometimes I get people that are on the right side of the aisle that are skeptical about climate change and the control that comes with it. And, and they asked me about it, and I, I say, do you want your family to drink dirty water or breathe dirty air? And of course, the answer is no. No Republican or Democrat wants their family to drink dirty water or breathe dirty air. And I think that's the basic. Uh, and we all need to work together. Renewable energy would be a wonderful thing. That One thing that never gets calculated in the cost analysis of, of uh climate uh, problems it are the health impacts that uh, we have you know all the lung diseases all the other diseases that are exacerbated by uh, a bad uh, living environment and so i think it's incumbent on all of us regardless of party you know and you know back to the republican thing for a minute too i point out to a lot of my republican colleagues it was teddy roosevelt a republican who set aside most of our national park land. It was President Eisenhower in the 1950s who set aside the Arctic Reserve. It was President Nixon's and then later Ford after his resignation that established our Environmental Protection Agency. We never had the EPA before. Uh, they also signed into law the Clean Water Drinking Water Amendments, the first one with teeth, the migratory uh, uh, bird protections. Uh, uh, on and on, they did all sorts of environmental legislation. It was Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher from Britain that got together and, and uh, organized the Montreal Protocols, protocols and led the world in fixing the ozone problem. You, you remember back in the 80s, an ozone hole had developed in the Southern Hemisphere. If the same thing had happened in the Northern Hemisphere, all sorts of ultraviolet light would have gotten in, cancer rates would have spiked. And because of the changes that were made as a result of those Montreal Protocols, we did not develop an ozone hole in the uh, northern hemisphere. Uh, and the one in the southern hemisphere is gradually repairing itself. Uh, so there's, and, and then it was uh, George Bush Sr. who uh, actually promoted and, and signed legislation creating a regular uh, study of where we are from the environmental basis so that we have good data, which is uh, tremendously important for moving ahead, I think. So 
there's this history of Republicans uh, promoting uh, good climate uh, legislation and progress within the country too. It should be a nonpartisan uh, thing. And then the second part of your question is what about mayors and local government? You know, mayors are the ones that ultimately have the control for how their cities are planned and laid out, how they're powered, how our roads work, whether you know, back to our roundabout discussion, whether one question we didn't talk about the roundabouts, just replacing roundabout or replacing stoplights with roundabouts saves millions of tons of carbon a year in our city. Uh, you're not sitting there idling or starting from zero, uh, which takes a lot more energy. You know, go for, it's a lot of momentum going from zero to 15 than it does going from 15 to 30. Remember that from physics class, Andrew? That's well, right. That's right. That. Uh, that wasn't one of my better grades at school, but I did remember that. Um, <laughs> the public then saves all that uh, gasoline or diesel fuel costs, too. So city design is vitally important. You know, the average, I've read that the average uh, commuter in the United States, the average adult working in the United States, spends two hours a day in their automobile. So if we can design our cities, cut that down to 10 minutes a day or 15 minutes a day, think of the improvements in air quality. Think of the improvements in quality of life for those people as well. Uh, So city design has a tremendous impact on climate and uh, our living environment. Uh, absolutely. You know, I don't think you could have stated that any better. And, and I, I think the history that you recounted is one that far too many people either were never taught or are, are just incapable of remembering, you know, in the moment. But but this whole discussion gets me thinking about the a former episode we had on the Green Hearts Louisville study that's being conducted here in our city to try and account for the benefit of green space in urban environments, the health benefits. And and in that vein, we see a lot of studies and and projects in the private sphere being conducted uh, to try and improve the environmental conditions within cities. But I don't know that the politics of improving uh, environmental outcomes uh, is generally taking or is generally you know, the discussions aren't being had at the local level. Many of them are being had at the state or federal level. Why do you think it is that more local politicians are not prioritizing climate initiatives in their platforms? You know, remember the U.S. Conference of Mayors and, and head up that task force you mentioned when you introduced me along with Mayor uh, Sam Licardo from uh, California. And uh, our task force, the Congress of Mayors, you also have one Republican, one Democrat, so he's the D and I'm the R in this task force. And uh, I've done it for a long time before. I've got Mayor Chavez from from uh, uh, Albuquerque and, and uh, Mayor Bill Finch from Bridgeport, uh, former mayor, all been my uh, co-chairs of this committee. And we bring a lot of best practices to the Congress of Mayors and talk about what mayors are doing. There's some awards given at the Congress of Mayors annual meetings for climate uh, change. And I, so I, I think I would challenge, based on what I see mayors across the country doing, uh, I would challenge the uh, assumption that mayors aren't engaged in, in trying to make their uh, in climate change issues. I, I think they are. In fact, we had uh, back about 
12 years ago, we had over 1,200 mayors in the United States, which is about 99% of the mayors uh, cities over uh, back then over over uh, 30,000 in population. We had about 99% of those mayors signed uh, climate protocols. And they were simply goals saying we're going to try to to uh, reduce our uh, our emissions in our cities by X amount. And then when we got into the uh, uh, Paris Agreement and uh, the former president uh, announced he wanted to take us out of it, the mayors got together and said, you know, if we meet our climate goals that we've all made as mayors, the United States will meet their goals just by local action. So I think mayors are engaged about it. It may not be number one in their campaign uh, literature, but, but I think it's there. And I, I think most mayors are trying everything they can. You know, mayors are responsible, you know, not only traffic planning and walkability and city design and energy, in some cases they're responsible for uh, uh, stormwater that gets dumped into our waterway. You, know, you, you see uh, some oil run into a drain along the curb street, a long way from the water, but that, uh, that oil then uh, runs to uh, a stream somewhere or a swale then it goes to a stream and eventually gets into a river or a lake somebody else is pumping water out you know maybe miles away uh and has to clean up that water before it can be uh used as part of a municipal water system uh so mayors work with all of these systems you know and making sure that uh you know that storm drain now runs through lots of natural uh filters uh, before it gets into that natural waterway, it's why we often don't cut down uh, uh, vegetation around retention ponds along stream banks is so that that uh, discharge coming off our streets actually goes through a natural filtration system before it gets uh, into that waterway and travels somewhere else. But all these things work together. Mayors have a huge impact. I can't emphasize that enough. And I think most mayors probably work with an environmental issue of some sort almost every day uh, of their term. That's fair. And, and I think that kind of takes me to my next question is that we've seen, you know, from 2000 to today, Carmel's had seen explosive population growth. I'm sure you're dealing with the environmental impacts of that. Uh, but why do you think that what's responsible for Carmel's rapid growth over the last 20 years? Well, I, I, I would joke with a close friend and say, well, it's because of the mayor, but I won't say that. Uh, <laughs> you know, Carmel's done a lot of things right, I think, compared to that, that other cities haven't. Um, we have, I've tried to focus as mayor on basic things, but doing them really well in finding the best practices around the world. And I think that's like, Carmel has a history of having a really good public school system, library system. But that was about it. When we started, we had nice, nice upscale houses. It's a wealthy area. We have focused on, you know, the corporate headquarters. And we have uh, today about 130 corporate headquarters. And that's provided the tax base. We've got our residential tax rates very well. But we have tried not to be all things. You know, I have to say no a lot to people. They want to do this, they want to do that. And they're all good ideas. Rarely somebody have a bad idea. I've seen a few, but rarely does a citizen have a bad idea. It's just that if you spread yourselves too thin, you can't do anything well. But we have prioritized, first of 
our park system, our school library system, of course, and our transportation system and safety. And then later, we, we see bike trails as part of our park initiatives. Uh, we have folks on walkability and our roundabouts. We have focused on creating a downtown because that's what people wanted, a walkable downtown. Uh, we've put most of our money into public-private partnerships or contribute greatly to our, uh, our tax base. And I want to talk about maybe in regards to that question, why Carmel has succeeded in, in growing so quickly. It's when, when I first ran as mayor, one of the things I knocked on thousands of doors, and one of the things I heard over and over in many, many different ways, but essence the same desire. I asked people what their hopes and dreams were. You know, the answers I got were almost always included something. I wish we had a downtown. You know, I've traveled the year. If they have these old, beautiful downtowns, why can't we build that? We have all this sprawl. Why can't I go out for a dinner and a show here? I have to drive into Indianapolis 45 minutes away and go to downtown Indianapolis. You know, fun to do occasionally, but I don't want to do it every night or every night. So we, we got this yearning for a traditional walkable, pedestrian-friendly downtown in the suburban community. We had a yearning for art and being able to walk and bike into that downtown area. We focused on that, and that's really, you know, listening to the public, taking 25 years, but being able to make that shift from a car suburb, nice one, but still just a car suburb like hundreds of others around the United States, into a walkable, traditional city, standalone city with uh, lots of, you know, ability to find a job and work right here in town, not have to drive commute in Indianapolis. We have some more people commuting into Carmel every day than leaving Carmel every day. And if you think about economic development, it's all tied together with these quality of life items we're talking about. An acquaintance of mine named Mark Lauder has been in economic development out in the Phoenix area for a long time. Wrote a book two years ago called When the Burmers Bail. Think about that title for a minute. Talking about when the baby boomers start retiring. Two years ago, before the pandemic, he said that within the next 10 years, his data shows that 40% of the U.S. workforce is going to retire. 40%, four out of 10 jobs. And, you know, when I got out of college, a number of years ago, I'm not going to say exactly when, although I suppose you could find it on the internet. You know, if I got a good job somewhere across the country, I was going. And and that's the way people of my generation approach their work careers. Yeah, you look for a job, you went where that job was. Um, today, it's going to be very different because employees, especially the brightest and the best that these corporate headquarters need to compete, are going to graduate from great universities. They're going to say, I'm not going to live there. I'm not going to take that job. I've got five other offers here. I'm going to live here or there. I'm going to live in the mountains. I'm going to live next to the ocean. I'm going to live in this great city in the Midwest. Uh, and, and so these quality of life issues are going to become paramount. And there's going to be cities that win and cities that lose. The cities that win are going to be those that invest in themselves that put back money back into their cities. 
uh, that have good school systems, that have great libraries, but even more uh, important than they have great, well, in addition to that, it's gonna be important to have good parks, good trail systems, good cultural opportunities, uh, opportunities to see athletic events, uh, clean cities, safe cities, walkable cities, cities with beautiful architecture. If we do all those things, we can compete even though we're sitting here in the Midwest without mountains, without oceans, and with lousy weather a half the year. Uh, so that's the approach we've taken, but it's been a very limited approach. Let's focus on things that fit into that equation. Everything else will manage to get done some other way. And one other thing I think that's important to talk about that we have focused on, we have focused on trying to send the message that we welcome everybody, regardless of place of origin, religion, race. We have to build a city. It's going to be a really great city where anybody, any background, um, work hard and thrive and prosper. It's got to be an inclusive city. Yeah, that I think that makes a lot of sense now, I, and I think that provides a lot of uh, depth and highlights a lot of a lot of the factors as to why Carmel's growing. Uh, one other thing I wanted to kind of pick your brain on is since you're with the U.S. Conference of Mayors and you probably maintain relationships with mayors from across the country, do you? see those relationships adding benefits do you you know as we do in this podcast right we try and steal policies from from other cities essentially have well, there no, been policies that have stood out that we call them best practices we're, we're inspired <laughs> by other cities best practices we never steal address a bad word <laughs> <laughs> well so okay have there any been any best practices that you've uh that you've seen from other cities that you've tried to incorporate uh, joking aside, we, we steal from each other all the time. Uh, and, and, and that's one of the great, you know, the, being with the other mayors and, and just sitting around in the evening and talking about all the similar challenges that we face, it, it's a tough job being, being mayor of a city. Uh, and having that collegiality is very helpful. But the second part of it is that we do get to see other cities' best practices. So many of the things that I that we've implemented, I've seen in other places. Uh, you gauge your competition, what they're doing in a collegial way, uh, and hopefully you contribute something uh, in terms of best practices and and help other mayors uh, uh, replicate what you've done that's worked well. Well, Mayor, we're we're starting to wind down, but before we let you go, I did want to ask, and we've talked about roundabouts, your relationship with other other mayors, platform on on environmental justice and environmental issues. Uh, but we know you've been mayor of Carmel, Indiana since, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think your first campaign started around 1995. That's correct. Uh, have you ever considered running for, for a different office or is there likely a larger political run in your future? Well, I've thought about it. You know, at one point, our congressional state uh, for the U.S. Congress is up, and I thought about that. And then I thought about what mayors do. You know, we're set up mayors in Indiana, particularly. We don't have a city manager system. I'm, in essence, a city manager. I'm the executive. Think about the federal system where the president's the executive, Congress is a legislative body. You know, legis is the Latin word for law. So they make the laws. The president then 
runs the government on a day-to-day basis. Same thing under Indiana's system. The mayors are the executive. They run the city on a day-to-day basis. The legislative body, the city council, makes the laws, reacts to proposals from the mayor and so on. And I think about my personality and what I enjoy doing. I think I'd make a lousy legislator. Um, I like to get out and do things, take projects, uh, take them from uh, A to Z, uh, see them completed and move on to the next project. Legislative body debates policy. Uh, You know, I like my interactions with them. I like being the executive. So I have always declined those offers to uh, run for federal state legislative bodies. Being an executive, uh, would be more interesting. Uh, I'm not running for president. Uh, I, I haven't uh, I'm decided about running for governor in Indiana. Uh, you know, people say run for higher office. And I always quibble a little bit about that term higher. Uh, <laughs> you know, maybe you're farther away from the people you represent. That may be what higher means. But uh, I, I think being mayor is about you know, in politics is one of the best jobs, if not the best job, because you're able to have more influence on the daily lives of the people you represent than anybody in Washington, D.C. or, or a state house. Uh, things that people deal with every day, traffic, water systems, uh, downtowns, economic development, good jobs, clean air, that's all done at the local level. And uh, that's what I find exciting about my job. And I don't think I would uh, enjoy a job uh, at the state level or the federal level nearly as much. Now, I think all the fancy buildings in Washington and and the national media, all that's uh, very seductive for a short period of time. But in terms of what you do day to day, working at the local level is the absolute best uh, job in politics there is. Well, and I'm glad that you at least realize what your strengths and weaknesses are. I think that's very important for any job, especially in politics. And uh, I I think you've made a lot of good points. Uh, Since we're wrapping up here, do you have any other projects that you're working on that you'd like to promote? Well, we're, you know, we face most, even Indianapolis, our neighborhood, but so much work on uh, economic development through professional and amateur sports, probably because of that emphasis hadn't been able to invest in the arts as much we built much more economic development around the arts we built this beautiful one of the great concert halls in the united states and several small theaters michael feinstein the great performer uh uh of the songbook era you know those songs the 20s and 30s and 40s you know the irving berlins and the stuff that rosemary clooney and frank sinatra sang from indiana hoagie carmichael and cole porter uh, were some of the composers uh, sings those songs not only as Michael, artistic director at our concert hall uh, we had a, it, one of his four Feinstein clubs in our new downtown he was one of New York and LA and San Francisco and ready Carmel, Indiana uh, but we've also committed to building the great American songbook you know Cleveland Museum Cleveland has the Rock and Roll Museum in Nashville Tennessee has has the uh, as the country museum, Owensboro, Kentucky has the Bluegrass Museum. We're going to build the Great American Song Museum. We're engaged in raising money from all over the United States to, you know, it's not just a museum about music that music scholars and musicologists will be interested in. It's it's a museum that tells the story 
of American life, our challenges, our hopes, our disappointments, our dreams throughout the period it represents. So Irving Songbook represents the music that came out of the Great Depression, the music that came out of the challenges of World War II, uh, music that came out of the 1950s after the war, the Cold War. Uh, and, and you see that story being told through the lyrics uh, and, and that music. So I'm really excited about this museum. We're going to put it right across the street from our uh, concert hall. And, and hopefully it'll be a, a national draw for uh, people. We'll bring people to our city and provide a great resource uh, for our country, as well as for the people who live here in Carmel. Well, Mayor, I, that is just one in a long list of, of interesting draws I think you've highlighted for your city. <clears throat> and it, it's it's honestly motivating me to want to take a trip up to Carmel and check out all of the changes that, that have taken place uh, under your leadership. But um, as we've already alluded to, we, we do have to wrap up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure Mayor well, Fisher would give you a passport for a day or so. Yeah, I think they'd let us off the hook. But no, we before we can let you go, we do ask all our guests some version of the same final question. Normally we phrase it, if you could change one thing about Louisville, what would it be? But in your case, if you could change one thing about Carmel or, or I guess even the greater Indianapolis area, uh, just kind of snap your fingers and make the change happen, what would it be? I think how we produce energy today. We, we still produce most of our energy from coal-fired or, or fossil fuel power. Uh, we could increase longevity and the health of the people that live in this state and our city overnight if we could have more renewables. If we could, if I could wave a wand um, and um, have renewables, power all our buildings, and our vehicles uh, by renewable energy would be a wonderful thing. And I, I know you said one thing, but there's a second one that's really important too. I go for you it. Have a high-speed trade network in the Midwest, wow. like Europe has. It'd be a, you know, it's three and a half hours for me to go from my house into the loop in Chicago. I calculated one day if we had a French-style or European-style high-speed train that went about 220 miles an hour, 41 minutes from my house into the loop in Chicago. Probably about 15 to 20 minutes down to Louisville once it got up to speed. Um, I think what we could do in terms of moving uh, people and goods around through a network like that, it absolutely revolutionized this part of the country. Amen. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's the type of policy we've been advocating for since we started this podcast. You know, I'd love to see some changes like that. But, but as we said, Mayor, we, we do have to sign off. We really really appreciate you taking the time and i think it's been a great discussion yeah thank you so much i've enjoyed it i hope that you do get up here soon i get the opportunity to show you around i look forward to that absolutely we'll pick back up with our reaction segment after a word from our sponsor well luke that was another interesting episode this week with Mayor Jim Brainerd. Obviously, we talked a lot about roundabouts, but you know what? What kind of stood out to you? Well, I mean, we covered a lot of ground. It was more than just roundabouts. But uh, starting off there, I thought the one thing that was interesting, and the mayor had this st statistics right at the tip of his tongue, but uh, the impact it had 
on fatalities. I mean, I think he held it out as like the primary measure, mm-hmm. you know, that he is using to justify these policies. And I think that's probably the best measure you could use, you know, because everybody wants safer roads. But and again, if I'm remembering it correctly, I think it was something like the Indianapolis city their fatality per 100,000 was something like 12, and in Carmel with all of their roundabouts and a decrease in traffic lights, it was something like two mm-hmm. in 100,000. So I, we're talking about low numbers to begin with, but like that is a pretty impressive drop. And if roundabouts are even minorly responsible, it's really cool. Well, and he you know, emphasized the reason for it is the correlation, and again, the correlation doesn't always equal causation, right? The old cliche, but in this instance, it seems like slower cars results in fewer fatalities yeah right i mean it just does it's not not hard to imagine that scenario and and i think you'd honestly have to convince me there's some other kind of outlier we're not seeing that's causing it because i mean this seems like a no-brainer well and the other part about this too is like i like the theory of roundabouts because we haven't really i guess more rotary right learned that from Freakonomics, but the reason that those to me are so good is if we think about it, what is the worst form for traffic? Like not even from an environmental or or like a safety perspective. What is just the worst? Well, it's it's the four-way stop sign, right? Because it's just so inefficient. And stoplights are more efficient, but ideally you could have, I guess in theory, you could have two polar end scenarios when it comes to roundabouts, right? Or rotaries is that you could have it where traffic is constantly flowing and getting in to the circle and leaving the circle, or you're in this constant state of paralysis where no one can enter the circle because the circle is constantly so busy, right? Those are the two, in theory, extremes of the way roundabouts work. But in reality, it's clear that a couple of things happen. They're slow, they slow down traffic, but they make traffic more efficient. Yeah, overall, people aren't reaching the same top speed, but it's more constant. Yeah, it's a steady stream, and that's that's the important aspect of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, all people really care about is like the time between A and B. And yeah, exactly. This seems to improve it. So you know, the discussion's kind of it seems obvious again. Yeah, and then, but if that were the case, then highways would always be you know primary example number one but i think you also have to kind of look back to it like the environmental impact right the less time you're sitting at a stoplight or sitting at a stop stop sign the more efficient you're being with your vehicle so i think that's a huge huge component to all of this yeah absolutely and, and that's hitting on you know a theme that just keeps coming back and back and back and that's lowering your carbon footprint in some way like the different methods that cities are engaging in to try and improve that. And another thing that we keep talking about is investment in public transit. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like investing in changing your roadways to include more roundabouts is one thing, but I think the mayor mentioned in his final answer, talking about high-speed rails and connecting like larger urban hubs across the country, like that being one step in a larger environmental policy that he could, you know, maybe envision. Yeah, and I think the key here though, is I think when you're looking at public transit and looking at the environmental policy, you have two totally separate discussions connecting cities and what actually happens inside the cities those to me are so totally separate because yes would i love to be able to hop on a train and just go right through not have to deal with like tsa like you do with airplanes and just go right to chicago not have to worry about driving and then i could just sit on the train and be there in the same amount of time it would take for me to sit through an airport and, and get there but i could just be on my laptop on wi-fi or whatever the entire time that would be great 
Now, that's – and I'm glad that we're having you know Amtrak connecting back to Louisville now, finally connecting us up to Chicago, maybe to Cincinnati. It, we're still missing the, the Chicago to Indy to Louisville to Nashville down to Atlanta connection. We're still missing that. But I think eventually if, if these new Amtrak plans come into play, that will come. But with that said, I think there has to be emphasis put on local public transportation. And with that street design, you can't have one without the other. So we have a lot of people, including us, or I don't want to put words in your mouth, Luke, but we have a lot of people pushing for street design with bike lanes. And I am supportive of that. But the, I think the further we get into this discussion and continue to hit these topics, bike lanes themselves are just not enough to substantially change traffic patterns. Because what happens is either they're put together in a truncated fashion to where they don't actually connect as much as they should, or they're thrown into like sewage drains and they don't take near uh, enough of the lane to make an impact on traffic safety and traffic yeah. calming, right? So what you have to do is I think I think we have to start looking at it from the inverse perspective of taking the traditional steps of putting in segregated bus lanes that take up a car lane, move more people and are much more efficient at moving people. And because of that, that slows traffic speeds, increases efficiency, and creates more public safety. And that bus lanes themselves can be the stepping stone to light rail. Yeah. But the light rail has to be within the city. But to me, it's just the simple fact of you have to do the public transit that impacts street design and you can't have one without the other. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and you and I were talking before we, we sat down for the reaction segment. I, I think one thing that dictates like where the changes are happening currently is maybe the source of the funding. Like I think mm -hmm. it's, uh, you're seeing some top-down investment that's going to favor larger, more interconnected kind of urban big schemes, you know, mm -hmm. uh, in, in transit, public transit, like changes to Amtrak and whatnot. But if you want to do things like changing the bus lanes, like that's going to come from raising support on the local level, something that like mayors are going to be better suited for. And, you know, I think that's maybe why you've seen uh, such dramatic changes to the traffic patterns in Carmel because they've got a mayor that's willing to go out there and fight for the things that he wants. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. And it just comes back to, is there going to be federal funding to emphasize these local changes, you know, whether it's to emphasize light rail or bus lanes or even hell, even bike lanes, or is it just going to be completely up to the, the local officials? Yeah. yeah. Or a combination, but it, it seems like there just isn't a ton of federal funding for the local changes it's mostly focused on now that intercity connections exactly exactly but either way i think another thing that it brought to light was a kind of juxtaposition in modern politics you see a republican governor or a republican mayor excuse me with a really strong stance on environmental issues in favor of making changes to lower your carbon footprint and make uh public transit and accessibility of priority in this town, it's kind of interesting in like the politically divided times of today to see somebody reaching across the aisle on issues like that. And I, I don't think it's actually that foreign in something like local politics. Yeah. You know? I think you do see that much more often than people think. 
but it's something that we kind of just need to stop and remind ourselves is is the norm that we've always kind of uh, mm-hmm. expected expected yeah and operated under and like we're seeing it less and less nowadays and i think that's just uh, it's terrible to watch it happen well and i think with with what we do with our podcast right is we try and get people from both sides of the aisle to try and really paint good pictures of policy because ultimately good policy bifurcates any type of political line if it's good policy it's good policy no matter what political party you're on yeah exactly. so yeah it, it is just interesting to see and and i think he also represents i know he's not a younger republican i do think some younger republicans now are more interested in climate change and addressing that issue that wasn't the case a number of years ago and i think he kind of represents that smaller uh, potentially growing faction it's more than just like younger republicans uh changing like their stances on issues we've got all kinds of changes taking place in this like covid pandemic environment and one of the things that i wanted to talk about today actually plays into our white paper uh which is titled from la to boise how migration has changed during the pandemic and uh really what it's talking about you've probably seen reports on the news to this end that you've got a lot of migration taking place from the major metropolitan hubs, your LA, Chicago, New York's, to much more like Midwestern or smaller scale cities. I, I think the largest one that they, that you've probably heard a lot about, would be like Austin. But you've got places like Boise, Indianapolis are, is set to gain Louisville. We haven't really seen it coalesce here as much, but we've got a lot of smaller, like mid-range cities that are seeing a huge benefit. Sorry, I, I know I'm already getting repetitive. All I wanted to talk about was that like this opens up an opportunity for cities that are willing to change themselves to capitalize on like a changing migration market. And I think exactly what you're saying here is true. And Carmel is a good example. Now, Carmel is not the mid-sized city, right? But what they are is they are essentially a giant suburb of Indianapolis. Yeah. And so because Indianapolis is growing because of COVID, I'm sure there are people that are either moving outside of COVID from Indianapolis outside of Indianapolis to Carmel, or people are just moving straight to Carmel because they want to be close to a big city. So part of that exponential growth is because of their design, because of the way they laid out, it's just affecting the same trend line that, that we've seen. Yeah, absolutely. It's a reversal of something we would have seen in like the 2000s when we expected only like these mega cities to to keep their eventual march up. And, you know, having like a massive reversal in that trend is it's opening up opportunities for cities like us. Yeah. And then that gets to kind of to our last point, right? With like what he mentioned is how he's so interested in just being in the executive role because the legislative and it's because these these migration patterns are cities decision now, right? If you want to be part of this giant migration pattern that's happening as a city, as a country, then the city has to decide we're going to make things desirable for people to move here. We're going to have great internet. We're going to have, you know, things to do that are outside. We're going to, you know, be a place that's welcoming for young working or even families uh, alike. So, but, but with that said, I think he made a really good point that I think a lot of politicians don't recognize. And that is you have to know what you're good at and what you're not. And the fact that he wants to stay in the executive because he's a doer and he's not necessarily someone that wants to quibble about policy. Now, you and I like to quibble about policy, but 
it is interesting to see that, you know, at least he recognizes his own position and his shortcomings. Yeah, absolutely. And it's refreshing to hear somebody that isn't dead set on, you know, cruising to that next rung of power, not trying to, I, I liked his comment about like, as you go up in politics, you're getting further and further away from constituents. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that he likes about his role as mayor. And honestly, mayors are granted a wide latitude in terms of their authority yeah. in most, uh, under most state constitutions. I think Indiana is no different. So he probably likes being able to have a really hands-on role. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, you got anything else, Andrew? No, I think this is a, another good episode, and um, I appreciate all you all listening. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for tuning in. As always, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for joining us on Building This Community. If you'd like any more information, you can follow us on Twitter at buildingthiscom, C-O-M, or you can follow Andrew at Andrew J. Klump, and you can also follow Luke at LMP43. Definitely subscribe, and we look forward to talking to you guys next week.